All right, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, we're looking at six words. What are those six words? Romans chapter 8. I'll wait till everyone gets there. It's open book if you need to find them. Romans chapter 8. All right, let's just go through them together. First word, what's the first word? Okay, foreknowledge. And where does that word appear? Verse 29, for whom he did foreknow. There's the word foreknowledge. Next. Predestinate. Next. Called. Found in verse 30. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, he also called. Next. Justified. Next. All of those in verse 30. And the next word. Verse 33, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect. Now, you look at all of those words. And what do these words lead to? Lead to a discussion about what? Very controversial subject. Do what? Doctrine of election. All right, doctrine of election, God's sovereignty. Now, our argument is that I that we have made is that before we get to those six words, there are some concepts that are previously discussed in Romans 8 that should eliminate the controversy of the six words because the controversy should have already occurred. And those concepts are what? What were the concepts that come before these six words? What are they? God subjected all of creation to what? Vanity, not according to whose will? To the will of creation. What verse is that? Okay, is it Romans 8 verse 20? Which says... The creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly. Everybody see that? So that immediately demonstrates what? God doing what? Doing something not according to whose will? The will of creation. Everybody see that? All right. Second thing, he subjected. Now, usually I give you two. I'm going to give you three here. All right. Second thing is he subjected all of creation to vanity, not according to their will, but he did so in what? And hope, what does that imply? That if he did it in hope, he knows not only the beginning, he knows the end, and he's going to have to work everything to get it to that hopeful conclusion. Agreed? All right. The third thing is found also in Romans 8. What's the third thing we looked at that is mentioned before we get to those six words? All things work together for good, right? Everybody see that? What verse is that? Romans 8.28. Now, what is significant about that? For all things to work together to good, what all things is that referring to? All of the groaning and suffering in the verses preceding. So he somehow has a way to use suffering and groaning for good, which requires what to take place? God has to be somehow sovereignly not only involved, he has to be sovereignly what? In charge, right? Yes? Okay, so that right there establishes, and again, I'm, I know that this is not the way it's typically preached, but if we establish that, then we get to these six words, we're, you're almost prepared for the six words, right? It's not that controversial, but we've even taken a step further. All of those things that we just looked at leads to the doctrine of what? God's providence. God's providence, which we have been looking at, correct? Now let's go through some of the things that we have discussed, all right? I'm going to go quickly. I was going to start with a different way, a different way, but I'm going to use that uh, introduction after we do the review, all right? So God's providence. Remember we gave the definition of God's providence? 
God is continually involved with all created things in such a way that he, number one, keeps them existing and maintaining the properties with which he created them. Number two, cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And number three, directs them to fulfill his purposes. Okay? And then underneath the general category of providence, there are three subtopics which we have given preservation, concurrence, and government. Yes? Did we not look at uh, preservation? We went, I'm not going to review everything we talked about preservation. Did we look at concurrence? Yes. And from concurrence, there were some things that we looked at. Right? Concurrence is God cooperates with created things in every action, directing their distinctive properties to cause them to act as they do. And then we looked at how that works in inanimate creation. Everybody remember that? Um, how it works in animals. How it works in seemingly random or chance events. Correct? And then, finally, uh, then we looked at events that seem fully caused by God and fully caused by the creature as well. Remember we talked about that? All right. Then we talked about, did we mention the affairs of nations? All right. Then that leads us to the one we come to today. And this is as far as we're going to get today. We're not even going to move this forward because this one is where all the controversy breaks out and create creation and people go crazy and uh, it gets nuts. All right. So here's how we're going to do this. We're going to start by just quickly mentioning Macbeth by William Shakespeare. Now, the reason we're going to mention this is because this is used a lot of times in theology. Now, I could use a different source, probably to create the same idea, but I'm not going to ask everyone to tell me the plot of of Macbeth. I'm not going to ask you because, sadly, I would probably just get depressed and start crying, all right? So I'm not going to do that. But if you know anything about Macbeth, or even if you don't, there is a person who is killed in the story. The person who is killed is King Duncan, all right? Now, the question every good theologian has is, who killed King Duncan? Now, the immediate answer will be Macbeth, right? Because Macbeth comes out, he's got the knife, it's covered in blood, he's all covered in blood, he doesn't know what to do, all right? And so you're like, Macbeth did it! But if you go back and read, I think it's, I think it's Act 2, I'm just, I'm guessing because it's been a while, um, Lady Macbeth really is a piece of work, okay? Lady Macbeth is, yeah, we could talk about her. In some ways, you could kind of argue she's the one who ultimately did it because she basically tells Macbeth, if you're really a man, you would do this. And and I could paraphrase and and give a modern version of Macbeth. But basically, you're not really a man unless you're willing to do this. And once Macbeth kills King Duncan and comes in all covered in blood, then everybody knows what Lady Macbeth does, right? She takes the knife and hides it on one of the drunken servants, right? Because, you know, she's going to try to cover this up. All right. So you could argue, well, Macbeth did it, but wait a minute. It's actually kind of Lady Macbeth is kind of really responsible for this. Like, Macbeth may have been the one who stabbed while King Duncan was sleeping, but Lady Macbeth was really the one who did this. But you could offer another option. That really the person responsible for the killing of King Duncan is William Shakespeare. Why? 
He wrote it. Right? And we don't, when we view it or read it, we don't think of it that way, but ultimately, who's the, the cause of it? Shakespeare. Right? So, this all comes into play when we start talking about God's providence, because when we start talking about God's providence, there is God, and then who else is in the story? Us, and what do you do every day? You carry out actions, right? You, you do things. You say things. So, when you do those things and say those things, how does that work with God's providence? Now, the reason we bring all of this up is in, uh, in uh, Grudem's systematic theology, at this point in concurrence, guess what he puts next for concurrence? Remember all the ones he's given us so far, right? How it works in inanimate uh, creation, how it works in animals, how it works in seemingly random or chance events, how it works in events fully caused by God and supposedly fully caused by, uh, by creatures, how it works in the affairs of nations, and then guess what he has for number six? You ready? All aspects of our lives... That's controversial. When you do what you do, who's doing it, and why is it being done? I I think we just blame Lady Macbeth for everything, because that woman's crazy. Okay, but that's a whole different story. Okay, all right, we won't get into a Shakespeare class, right? Where you have have a class on Shakespeare, and you get so excited, because you're like, oh, we're going to get to talk about Shakespeare, and you realize that nobody in the class actually understands anything they're reading. And then it becomes very depressing, okay? And then you get kicked out of said class, and you have to go sit in the library by yourself. Okay, all right, that's, that's what happened to me. I got kicked out. Because I told everybody in class that they were stupid, okay? That, so, that... Didn't really work out so well because I got frustrated. I'm like, how, how can you not understand this? It's not complicated. Okay, but yeah, so it didn't go so well. So, but as frustrating as that can be, when you get to these theological issues, it can be just as frustrating because guess what? Everyone does when you get to these theological issues. What do you think everyone does? Just like in a Shakespeare class, everyone thinks all of a sudden they're an expert on Shakespeare after demonstrating in five seconds that they don't understand even the first line of the first part of of Macbeth. They don't understand these subjects because these subjects require what? Oh, do they not require? They require work. They require possibly heavy drinking. I'm joking. Okay. They require, it's hard because your brain wants to just, you know, leak out the side of your head. So we're going to try to see what Grudem has to say here. And we're going to try to put this together. Everybody got their thinking caps on? Grudem is going to return to the Macbeth idea because this is a common thing to use. All right. Um, I don't know why they all want to use Macbeth. Okay, but that's, that's, there's some reason why. All right, here we go. Thinking caps on. Now remember, what am I reading? Grudem's systematic theology, right? So if you have a disagreement, your first disagreement is going to be with Grudem. Let, let me get past Grudem before before I speak, right? And then when I speak, then you can disagree with me, all right? Does that make sense? All right, here we go. According to Grudem, I quote, it is amazing to see the extent to which Scripture affirms that God brings about various events in our lives. For example, our dependence on God to give us food each day is affirmed every time we pray, give us this day our... 
Matthew 6, 11. That seems to imply that who ultimately gives us our daily bread? However, you would argue that you work in order to earn the money to buy the food and then someone has to cook it, right? So how do we reconcile that? It's God, but then we're involved, correct? How do we reconcile this? How do we work this together? Because this is all going to come into play when it comes to the doctrine of salvation. Well, did I do it? Did God, you see how this is all, the reason we're spending the time here is because it will save us the time when we get to these six words, all right? Let's see what he has to say here. Even though, now this is what Grudem says, I quote, even though we work for our food and as far as mere human observation can discern, obtain it through in entirely natural causes. Now, you see the key phrase there? From, from your observation, how did you obtain the food? Through natural causes. God is not involved. Through your observation. Did everybody hear that? Through your observation. Let's kind of go back. I know it's not perfect, but let's go back to this. When you're reading the story of Macbeth or watching the play, you're just watching the story. So from your observation, who kills King Duncan? Macbeth, right? However, because where where were you not? You were not sitting next to William Shakespeare when he wrote it. So from from your mere observation... Right? I know it's not perfect, but you get the idea. So what he is arguing, from a mere observational perspective, how did you obtain food? You worked, you purchased it, someone cooked it. Or you just went to some place and bought it, already made. Okay, right? Get the idea? Right? That from, so from a purely observational standpoint, it all came about by what causes? I want you to put the word down, natural causes. So far, so good? He goes, in the same way, Paul, looking at events with the eye of faith, affirms that God will supply every need of his children, Philippians 4.19, even though God may use ordinary means such as other people to do so. Right? So then he goes to Paul, who, who from a faith perspective, is saying it's God who's providing. From natural observation, it's natural causes. From a faith perspective, it's supernatural cause. Can we use that word? Right? So, what's the, so what's the difference between uh, seeing the natural cause or seeing the supernatural cause? What's the difference? Me and Emma were just talking about this in regards to critical race theory. I think Seth just said it. Perspective. Your perspective will determine this. All right? Just keep that in mind. Keep that. That's very important to understand. And why is this so important to understand? Because typically theological disputes in regards to God's sovereignty and God's providence becomes an argument of, before you can argue, you have to stop and go, wait a minute, from which perspective are you arguing? Right? If you're you're looking at it from a natural, earthly perspective, what do you see? People committing acts, people doing certain things, and that I believed and I had faith, so therefore I'm seeing it that it was all done by my choice, my will, me. That's my perspective. But the faith perspective comes in and says, well, wait a minute, God is sovereign, he did this. It's your perspective. You've got to first establish the perspective you're arguing, which rarely happens in these disputes because everyone just starts quoting a scripture. 
Wait, wait, that scripture says, that scripture says, and then it's death by cross-reference, and nobody has any meaningful theological discussion. I hate those discussions. Because it's just like, you quote a scripture, they quote a scripture, you quote, and nobody wants to spend any time actually doing actual scriptural work. The scriptural work here is, perspective is going to determine how you see it. Has everybody got that? So far, so good? All right, hope so. All right, this is going to raise a million questions, but okay. All right, God plans our days all right, before we are born. For David affirms, in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139.16. Everybody can look up Psalm 139.16 for yourself. Go ahead and look it up. Psalm 139.16. Let's have this down. Let's have this written. Psalm 139.16. I don't know what translation he was quoting it from. We'll read it. I'll read it from the King James. I'm assuming everybody has different translations, so we will we'll go to the King James, though. That's what we use. When, Psalm 139.16. All right. Psalm 139.16. It reads this way in the King James. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect, and in thy book all thy members were written, which in continuance were fashioned when as yet there was none of them. The King James says, all my members were written. Uh, what, what does the other translation say there? All the days. Okay. ESV, I'm assuming, says something similar. Okay, so let's go with this idea. If, if God has a book and all of my days are written in them, right? All the days, as the way Grudem has it quotes this way, in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me. If every day was written in the book before they even existed or before they even occurred, not only does that demonstrate God's foreknowledge, agreed, well, if he writes exactly the days and what's going to happen, that goes beyond just foreknowledge, yes? Then we go on to what? Providence, or what are we currently discussing? Concurrence, thank you. All right, concurrence. God is controlling a guy. Now, what does that mean in your everyday life? What is that? How do we understand that? What does that imply? Well, again, uh, there's good things about this, but there's negative things about this as well, Correct? I don't know how you grew up, but there's a lot of days I grew up that I don't know why they would have been written in any book. Yes? We can't deny the negative with this. Right? And this is, this is why if you take this concept and you walk into a philosophy class in any university, you're going to get laughed out of the room and probably be considered that you're basically Hitler and yet you probably should never speak again and you probably should be banned because you're an evil, messed up individual. Right? They may think you're psychotic. I don't think it's, I definitely think that's a possible interpretation. That this just the number, that this is just referring to how long we're going to live, not to the things that are going to happen. I think it's a possible interpretation, but we'll go with how Grudem is using it for now. Right? But it's definitely a possible way of, of handling it. All right? All right? So far, so good. But does everybody understand why this would be like, many people would view this as like an evil belief system? Because there's people who suffer. And if God knew it, wrote it, basically ordained it, then that makes God 
seem like a pretty messed up God. Does everybody understand that? So your options is you have to remove God's foreknowledge and God's involvement, which creates all kinds of problems. All right? That's why you just, yeah, man. This doesn't go well, this doesn't go well in a philosophy classroom. I'm telling you, it just, you'll, you'll get destroyed. You'll get, you'll just, that'll be the end. Okay? Job says, he continues, that man's days are determined and the number of his months is with you and you have appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. Job 14.5. Now again, I don't like quoting anything from Job because there's some problems with that, but the idea is that what is determined there? The numbers of days. All right? This can be seen in the life of Paul who says that God had set me apart before I was born. Galatians 1.5. And once again, I accidentally changed the page here. Give me one second. Now, it's just the, it just, right here on the side, I don't know if you can see, it's all the pages. So you tap one, it just immediately jumps. So you just got to, if I would hold it on this side, but I always want to grab it this way. All right, here we go. Um, so Galatians 1.5, and Paul says that he'd been set apart before he was born. And Jeremiah, to whom God said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Jeremiah 1.5. Right? Everybody see that? So this seems to imply that what, what does God control? Grudem is arguing he controls the days. He controls the number of days. And he controls what you're going to do and what you're going to be. All right? Now, you could argue, well, wait a minute, maybe that was just for Paul, maybe that was just for Jeremiah, has nothing to do with us. You could make an argument there, but okay. Now, he goes on to say, all actions are under God's providential care, for in him we live and move, and he makes a reference to Acts 17, 28. The individual steps we take each day are directed by the Lord. Jeremiah confesses, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Look at Jeremiah 10.23. Everybody look that one up. Jeremiah 10.23. Jeremiah 10.23. Some of these I'm going I'm to have us look at because they're very important. Jeremiah 10.23. All right, Jeremiah 10.23. Oh, Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not a man that walketh to direct his steps. Jeremiah 10.23. That's, look, I don't care what your theology is. You got you to figure out what that means, right? This seems to be implying that who's ultimately in charge of everything. God. God's working it. Every aspect of your life. He's involved. Every aspect of your life. He's work, working it. What does that mean? Now, Sarah Danzler, I think last week, asked the question, and we're going to get to that, the, the problem this possibly leads to, because it does lead to a major theological problem. A major theological problem. But before we get there, we're going to just try to build this idea. So, what is Grudem asserting? That scripture seems to imply that God is in control of what? Every aspect of your life. How long you live, when you live, what happens while you live. Okay? 
We read that a man's steps are ordered by the Lord. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4. You can look that one up. Proverbs chapter 20, verse 4. Proverbs 20, verse 4. And you need to have these written down and you can sit, spend the rest of your life looking at them. Um, wait, that's, I, they gave the wrong one here. Proverbs 20, 24, I bet. Am I right? Yes. Proverbs 20, 24. Man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man then understand his own way? Everybody see that? Proverbs 20, 24. Our goings are what? Are of the Lord. So if they're of the Lord, then how do you answer the question that's asked by the, uh, in Proverbs there? How can you understand your way? You've got to understand what? God and his word. That's the only way to understand your way. Because our ways are directed by God. Everybody understand that concept? So far, so good. All right. Uh, how about Proverbs 16.9? Hopefully, they have the right reference, and I won't have to try to figure out where it is. 16.9. Proverbs 16.9. Proverbs 16.9. What, what is this saying? A man's heart does what? Deviseth his way, but the Lord... So what does this seem to imply? What does this seem to imply? We may come up with all kinds of plans and ideas, but who's ultimately in charge? The Lord. All right? So what is Grudem asserting so far? God is in charge of what? Simply put, every aspect of our lives. What are some of the aspects he has determined? What goes on during the days, the number of days, what we're going to do, what's going to happen to us, the way we're going to go? Our daily bread, all of it is determined by God. That is the assertion made by Grudem here and the scriptures that he has quoted so far. So far, so good? All right. Um, how about Proverbs 16.1? Look at Proverbs 16.1. Here's another one we could possibly use. The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from whom? All right, what does that seem to imply that God is in charge of? <laughs> even what we say, all right? Even what we say. That raises all kinds of questions, right? right? Hey, teenagers, you may not want to be listening to this because I know what you're going to say. Hey, mom, that, that, God controls my tongue. So how, why are you mad at me, okay? You see how people could try to use this in all kinds of different ways, yes? All right? Success and failure comes from God. For we read... For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down and lifting up another. That's Psalm 75, 6 through 7. Mary can say, He has put down the mighty from their throne and exalted those of low degree. Luke chapter 1, verse 52. The Lord gives children for children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. Psalm 127, 3. All of that implies that who is doing everything? God is in charge of everything. All right? Um, I'm, I'm going to skip some of this because it's, I mean, he's just going to build and build with scripture after scripture after scripture. He goes on to say, God influences rulers and their decisions. For the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 21.1. You can look that one up if you want to. Proverbs 
What does it say? The king's heart is where? In the hands of the Lord, as the rivers of water, he does it what? He turns it whithersoever he will. Now, I want you to just contemplate that for a couple of minutes. What should that, how should that impact your daily life? What's the implications that flow from that? That if God is directing the, the, the actions of the rulers, you can get upset all day about it and complain and complain and complain, but who's the one doing it? You can run around and say, Biden's destroying America! What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Uh, who's destroying America? Yeah, see, this gets uncomfortable when you get practical with it, right? See, the way I'm supposed to preach this is not put it in a practical term like that because that makes everyone mad. But it's because now you're like, wait a minute. No, we're going we're gonna to bring Trump back. We're going to save a country. Okay, wh- whatever. You go and do all the thing. But I, I, what I read is that someone else is in charge. Right? Not you. Okay? God is in charge. Isn't that what we're hearing here? Is, is, does the Bible give any example of God turning the hearts of kings? Okay. Well, I'll, I'll give a couple. That, that one's a good one. Okay. An illustration of this is when the Lord turned the heart of king of Syria to his people so that he aided them in the work of the house of God um, and the God of Israel in Ezra chapter 6, verse 22. He turns the heart of the king to help Israel. Um, or when he, Lord, stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, to help the people of Israel. Uh, so, but in, in other cases, Pharaoh, he hardened his heart. Sometimes he turned the heart to help the, uh, the children of Israel. Sometimes he would turn a king, in a sense, to not help them. Agreed? All right. All right. Um, let's see here. There's all kinds of other scriptures here. Um, how about, let's go, I'm, I'm going to just look at this one. Go to Philippians chapter 2. I don't know if I want to use this one or not, but let's, because it may get into all kinds of other issues. But go to Philippians chapter 2. All right, look at Philippians 2.13. What do we find there? For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. What does that go? That's, that's taking the idea of what he does in kings and he does it where? And us. Getting a little uncomfortable yet? Making you nervous? It does, right? As long as I keep it theoretical, everybody's okay, but when we start bringing it into real, tangible situations, Christians have been running around forever going crazy over politics. Well, my Bible says, who appoints the one in charge? God. Who's the one who turns the heart of the, of the king to do what he does? God. So why, why, how come that never shows up in, in Christian discussion about politics? Why? I don't know. Because, you, because you're looking at everything from a very humanistic, natural perspective, and you're completely ignoring the spiritual perspective, and you see that, oh, we've got to do this, and we've got to do this, we've got to save this, we've got to do it. You can fight all day. You Guess who you can't fight against? God. 
right? I don't care what you, you can, you can get all the people in the world, you can pass out voting this, vote this, vote this, ban a boycott that, you can fight, fight, fight. You're not going to overcome God. I, I know that's a shock, but you can't. Now, I know you're probably convinced that God agrees with your politics, but probably not. Right? You probably are convinced that, you know, God is sitting, you know, on the throne, you know, with, you know, a Make America Great hat on, but that's probably not the case. In fact, it's not the case. All right? Everybody got it? I know it's going to offend some people, but that's okay. I'm sorry. Don't try to make God agree with your politics because most likely he doesn't agree with your politics. Correct? I'm, I'm, I'm everyone's politics because politics come from a very humanistic perspective, not a spiritual perspective. All right? Uh, it says, all of these passages report both general statements about God's work and the lives of all people and specific examples of God's work and the lives of individuals. Lead us to conclude. Are you ready? Here's the conclusion. That God's providential work of concurrence extends to all aspects of our lives. Our words, our steps, our movements, our hearts and our abilities are all from the Lord. Now, what problem does this create? Sarah, you can say it since you've already brought it up. What does this create? There we go. There it is. If God's in charge of everything, then has he become the author of sin? This becomes a major theological issue that we're going to have to work out. Now, how does this work? We're going to see how Grudem tries to take this apart and what he does with it. We're not going to be able to get too far, but we're at least introducing this subject here. Right? I've given you specific scriptures. Those scriptures are not for you to have in your notes or for you to go home and read and meditate and struggle with. You need to struggle with these scriptures. These are hard scriptures. Right? Who's it put in charge of everything? God. I mean, I mean, we, I mean, I didn't even read half the scriptures he gave. I could give scripture after scripture that God is in charge of this and he does this and he does this and he does this. And you're like, okay. That everyone, everyone likes that. Like, isn't it amazing how we like these scriptures when it gives us a little bit of comfort? but we're not willing to see how, where their scriptures ultimately lead. They lead to a lot of discomfort if we're honest with them. Right? And I'm, I'm not afraid of the discomfort. I, I mean, you know, I, don't know, I don't know why Christians are, but we shouldn't be. All right. Here we go. You ready? Grudem warns, we must guard against misunderstanding. Ooh, okay. I, I want to know what, what he, he's going to do with this. Here also, as with the lower creation, God's providential direction as an unseen, behind-the-scenes primary cause should not lead us to deny the reality of our choices and actions. Now, I don't know how this works. We're going to see if he can explain it. He says, hey, we shouldn't deny the reality of our choices and actions. But who's behind the scenes, the primary cause for it all? God. So God's the primary cause, but I should not deny the reality of my choices and actions. I don't know how you reconcile these two, but we'll see if he comes up with a way to reconcile them. So far, so good? He says, again and again, 
Scripture affirms that we really do cause events to happen. We are significant and we are responsible. We do have choices and these are real choices that bring about real results. Scripture repeatedly affirms these truths as well. Just as a rock is really hard because God has made it with the property of hardness, just as water is really wet because God has made it with the property of wetness, just as plants are really alive because God has made them with the property of life, so our choices and our, our real choices and do have significant effects because God has made us in such a wonderful way that we, we have endowed with the property of willing choice. Now, lots of claims there. Okay, what does Will say? Okay, very, uh, thank you, Will. We'll get to that. Um, I think there's a way to, to work around that, but that is true. There's the passage in Peter that says God is not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Well, if God is willing that none should perish, then why does anyone perish? That's a very good question. Uh, now, now, we have to look at the scripture because I think it, it, I think it refers to us word there, but we'll get to that. We'll get to into a minute. In a minute, we'll see how far we can get. I don't know if we're going to have time, but we'll we'll see how far we can go. All right. Now this is very important. Now please note, he just said that according to him, God's the primary cause of everything, but somehow we still have a willing choice. Now, first of all, we always have to be careful when we say we have a willing choice. We can't. We have. We one thing we have to. We've got to just put this down now because it's going to come up later. Any willing choice cannot. We, we don't have a willing choice that operates independently of our nature. And what are we all born with? So our, will, or so our willing choice is not operating apart from that sinful, depraved nature. Does everybody understand that? that, that you, ha, you can't just say, oh, you've got a free choice, and it's somehow free from your depraved nature. No, your depraved nature would influence any choice, because where is that choice being made? Inside of you, and what's inside of you? A heart that is... Desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. All right, so everybody got that concept? All right, okay. We'll, we'll, we'll deal with that more as we move forward. All right. Um, he says, one approach to the, these passages about God's concurrence is to say that if our choices are real, they cannot be caused by God. All right, that's what some people would say. Hey, if, if, the, if, uh, if our choices are real, then they cannot be caused by God. That's how some people would argue. But the number of passages that affirm this providential control of God is so considerable and the difficulties involved in getting them some other interpretation are so formidable that it does, uh, that it does seem to me that this can be, that this uh, can be the right approach to them, that it cannot be the right approach to them. In other words, what he's saying is you can't just say, hey, my choice is not, you know, I can't just somehow say, well, God's not really doing it because I would have to try to reinterpret all of these scriptures and it would be impossible to reinterpret all of those scriptures. Can everyone agree with that? Yes. Yeah. So what we have to do is God's clearly in charge. What does that mean with our choices? We have to figure out, but we can't just say God didn't make the choice or God's not involved. Agreed? All right. Um, and then they go on to say, I'm, I'm, trying, I'm trying to move through here quickly. Um, it seems better, this is what Grudem says, it seems better to affirm that God causes all things that happen 
but that he does so in such a way that he somehow upholds our ability to make willing, responsible choices. Choices that have real and eternal results for which we are held accountable. Now, listen to what he says. Exactly how God combines his providential control with our willing and significant choices. Are you ready for this? Here's what you came to church for. You ready? Scripture, this is his argument, Scripture does not explain it to us. But rather than deny one aspect or the other simply because we cannot explain how both can be true, we should accept both in an attempt to be faithful to the teaching of Scripture. So his argument is this. If I go through Scripture, I'm going to see people making choices, but I'm going to see God controlling everything. Both are true, but what do we not have? An explanation in how they both are true. Now, from a philosophy standpoint, that is irritating to no end. Because that means what? We're not, we're not even going to attempt to answer it. You just, yeah, both are true. Congratulations. Move on. Okay. Well, I, I still have a lot of questions. Now, guess what he's getting ready to do next? What do you think he's going to do next? The analogy of an author writing a play may help us to grasp how both aspects can be true. In the Shakespearean play Macbeth, the character Macbeth murders King Duncan. Now, if we assume for a moment that this, this is a fictional account, we may ask, who killed King Duncan? On one level, the correct answer is Macbeth. Within the play, he carried out the murder and, he right, and is rightly to blame for it. But on another level, a correct answer to the question, who killed Duncan, would be William Shakespeare caused his death. He wrote the play, and he created all the characters, and, and he wrote the part where Macbeth killed King Duncan. It would not be correct to say that because Macbeth killed King Duncan, William Shakespeare did not somehow cause his death. Nor would it be correct to say that because William Shakespeare caused King Duncan's death, Macbeth did not kill him. Both are true. On the level of the characters in the play, Macbeth fully, 100% caused King Duncan's death. Now, I would argue Lady Macbeth needs some blame here, but okay. But on the, because that woman's crazy, okay. But on the level of the creator of the play, William Shakespeare fully, 100% caused King Duncan's death. In a similar fashion, we can understand that God fully causes things in one way, and we fully cause things in another way. One word of caution, however, the analogy of an author, writer, creator of a play should not lead us to say that God is the author, author, actor, doer, and an and older sense of author of sin, for he never does sinful actions, nor does he do, ever delight in them. So he's like, hey, this author idea, we can try to understand it, but he can't be the author of sin. <laughs> now, he doesn't bother to explain how this works. So, what are we left with here? Let's try to take this, let's try to come up with something tangible here. All right? What are we left with? Here's what we're left with. Do scriptures clearly affirm God seeming to be involved in every aspect of life? Yes. Does the Bible demonstrate people making choices and actions? Are people held responsible for those choices and actions? Yes. All right? Is the people who, who uh, crucified Christ, are they held responsible for crucifying him? Why did they do it? 
God's foreknowledge to determine it. He, he's the one who lifted them up and predetermined. Did Judas do what Judas did by making a choice? All right, why did he do what he did? Right. Well, God, right. And who created Satan? Okay, right, right. Now, so no matter how what we go back. So is there an easy way to explain this? No. So here's what I, I, I say. We cannot deny God's involvement in everything. We cannot. Now, what, we, what do we like to do? When things go good, who do we give praise to? When things go bad? Right? If, if your child uh, gets hit by a drunk driver, but it just dents in the side of the car and your c- child gets out and everything's okay, what does everybody say? Praise God! He saved my kid! He spared my kid! Now, of course, three, three blocks down, another kid wasn't spared, but we, we, we don't talk about that. that shh, shh. We don't talk about that. that yeah. well, wait a minute. So scripturally, what would we have to say? God's providentially involved in the event where the kid is saved and involved in the event where the kid... Does that always make you happy? Doesn't make me happy, right? I've had people uh, just talk about, oh, you know, my, my, my mother was sick and I prayed and she was healed. Well, my mom didn't. My father didn't. Okay, right. They did not. Right? When you're a teenager and you lose your mom, you're like, okay, well, why did everybody else's mom live? What, what's the deal, Right? not easy. I mean, you, we've all gone through different situations. That's hard to wrap your mind around. Scripture affirms, though, that who's in charge? God. So what's the best way to possibly handle this? What's the, what's the only meaningful way to handle this? This is the way I, I, I know this is not the most comforting, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is the way I'm going to handle this. Whenever I've reached, because I've experienced some pretty messed up things in my life, and there's times I've questioned God a million different ways. And there's times I've been very angry and upset with God. Some of you have experienced those same emotions. What I've always done is sit down and say, okay, if I throw away God, what am I left with? If I throw out God and become an atheist, what am I left with? Did the tragedy still happen? So that's not going to make the tragedy go away, is it? Is it going to bring back the person that we lost? No. Is it going to bring back the, the you know, whatever we suffered? It's not going to make it go away, right? So we're still left with the same reality. But now what are we left with? We have no purpose. We have no reason. And we may not even have a moral basis for saying that what happened was even wrong. We may have a legal basis to say legally it was wrong, but we would not even have a moral basis. So we have no purpose, we have no meaning, and we have no basis for morality to even condemn that something that was done was evil or wrong. That puts us, that's even a worse place to be in. That to me is even less philosophically satisfying. From a Christian perspective, what can I cling to? There is a God, and He's at work. Do I understand it? I do not understand it. Does he bother to explain it to us? Again, what was, what's the one book that you have to have? If there's one book in the Bible you have to understand for any of this to make sense, what book is it? The book of Job. Because does Job suffer? Yes. Is he ever offered an explanation? No. God is in control. In fact, what he, he lets Job ask all of those questions. Does he answer Job's questions? What does he do? Gives his own questions that Job cannot what? Answer. He cannot answer. 
We have, that's the Christian life. I know that you're always taught that Christianity is there to provide you all the answers so that everything makes sense. But Christianity is not there to provide you the answer that everything makes sense. Christianity is to provide you the idea that God is real. He exists. He is the creator. He is the sovereign. And he is working all things to his goodwill and pleasure, not your goodwill and pleasure. He's working all things for his purpose, not your purpose. And he's going to do that. And our job is to simply say what? Lord, not my will. Your will be done and accept that. Now, how does it work in every action? All I know is from my perspective, I make actions. What am I called to do? To make right actions, to make right choices and do right actions, correct? And if I do wrong, what does the Bible say? That I'm a guilty and then I'm a sinner. And I cannot make excuses for that. Now, somehow in God's overarching plan, he can use someone's sin for his purpose and his glory, right? David committed a horrible sin. He was still used to write the Psalms. Everybody's like, well, David faced consequences. He may have faced consequences, but it wasn't, the consequence wasn't writing scripture because God used him to write scripture. Solomon committed every kind of sin you can think of. You talk about adultery, he's committing adultery at a rate that nobody's even can comprehend, right? Polygamy, adultery, idolatry, yet we, we read from Proverbs today, did we not? Right? Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, right? Did, did, God, uh, did God somehow take him from uh, writing scripture because of those sins? No. So guess what now? Does that excuse his sin? No. Sin is never excused. But what does it demonstrate? Now this is good news and bad news. The good news is that even when we fail, that it means God can work in and through that failure for his purpose and his glory. Did Peter fail? Denied him not once, not twice. Now, we say, well, he just denied him. It's no big deal. I think that's a pretty serious sin. Right? Did, did God throw him off and throw him away? He showed up and did what? Restored him to a position of usefulness. Does that excuse Peter's sin? I mean, God knew it was going to happen. He told him it was going to happen, right? Told him it was going to happen. So there's, in some sense, it's comforting that, now, now listen to the way this is comforting. That in the midst of the confusion and the darkness, there is someone controlling it and working it even though it's not going the way I want it to go. Now, please understand, when we say all things work together for good, it's God's definition of good, not our definition of good, right? It doesn't, it doesn't mean I'm going to get my way. It doesn't mean it's going to work out my way. It doesn't mean that that cancer diagnosis is not going to be terminal. It's not, it doesn't mean it's not, it doesn't mean that. It just means that somehow in the midst of all of this, there's something, something makes sense when nothing seems to make sense. And we've got to grasp onto that because if you don't grasp onto that, life will drive you to the point of utter insanity. Right? Because, because there's a lot of things that life, I mean, look, everyone in this room, if you were to tell your story, your story is going to be very different than the person sitting next to you. Right? Okay? I mean, my childhood is going to be very different than many of your childhood. Mr. Goodlett's childhood is going to be very different. The things that people have experienced, pain, tragedy, it it doesn't make any sense. But God somehow in, through, was working, even though I don't like it. Doesn't mean we have to like it. Make sure you understand this. Doesn't mean you have to like it. Did Job like it? Job said a lot of mean things that if you were to say in church, people would say that you're bad. But God said he never sinned with what? His mouth. Right? 
So that means you can express a lot of frustration and not sin. It doesn't mean you have to like it. It doesn't mean you have to understand it. It just means that we have to see God somehow working in and above it all. He's working in and through everything. I, I hope that you can find comfort in that because sometimes, it, sometimes it's comforting, sometimes it's maddening. Sometimes I don't, I wish, I mean, look, look, God doesn't ask me how he wants to, he wants me to work everything today. You know, he doesn't call me in the morning and go, hey, how would you like me to work everything today? Okay, well, I would like you to end all racism, all poverty. You know, I, I can give him a list of things, but he doesn't check with me. Right? Is he checking with you? But he's still God, Right? So we have to cling to that. I wish there was a better explanation. Grudem doesn't have a good explanation. Nobody in history has a good explanation. Because it's hard to wrap your mind around. It's just, I, and we're, we still got to deal with what does this mean about sin because I still don't know. What, I mean, to me, I think it just means that somehow God knows, God knows every sin you're going to commit. I mean, and we, we always connect it to the big sins, right? If it's a big sin, then everybody goes crazy. But there's 900 small sins that nobody cares about. Nobody cares. You can commit that. A pastor can commit 9,000 sins and nobody even blinks an eye. But if it's a big sin, then everybody goes crazy. Whether it's a big sin or a small sin, what can you know? God knew it was going to happen. In, most ca- in many cases, God could have stopped it from happening, right? He could have intervened and kept David from committing that sin. Give me a break. He could have found a million ways to stop it. And it wouldn't even have to be supernatural. He could have just not have David arriving on the roof the same time she was taking a bath, right? He could have kept a million ways to keep that from happening, right? I mean, it wouldn't even have required, like, the parting of the Red Sea. It could have been small. But he didn't, right? So, is David still responsible? Yes. But God somehow works in and through it. Never, never use it as an excuse. Never. If we sin, it's our fault, no one else to blame, and we just have to acknowledge that. That's all you can do. All you can do is say, it's me, I messed up, nobody else's fault. Right? It doesn't even matter if there's 30 other circumstances. You can't, you just got to accept responsibility. That's all you can do. But you have to somehow hope that God will work in and through and above it. Does that make sense? And whenever you face tragedy, all you can do is hope that God will work in and through it and, and for ultimately his purpose. And that purpose may not ever be the purpose you wanted because it's not always the purpose I wanted. Does that make sense? All right. It's the best we can do. Will, I'm, I'm sorry we didn't get to the first, I think it's first Peter, maybe second Peter, um, that God's not willing that any should perish. But we will get there because we're, we're establishing the providence before we get to the doctrine of predestination and election, which then we'll get into that very subject. Does that make sense? All right, we'll stop right there. Lord, Lord God, we come before you this morning. Lord, I guess the only thing we can say today is that you are God and we are not. We don't always understand. If we're honest, Lord, we don't always agree. Lord, if we're honest, sometimes we're filled with hurt, bitterness, depression, discouragement. But Lord, we just take all of that, place it before you, and just acknowledge that you're God And all we can do is trust in your purpose, in your plan, in your will, as you work everything in and through to accomplish just that. Let us submit to that and hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said...